I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, ageing Aussie rockers gather at Palm Beach for a birthday weekend and some surprises are shared and secrets revealed. I needed something good and fast. So you stole our only hit. What is the matter with you? Bloody hell, Bill. I wrote it. Oh, not on your own, you wanker. A veteran late-night television chat show host rediscovers her mojo with the help of a bright new talent. What exactly is wrong with my bits? You're a little old and a little white. What can I do about that? And some say he was the greatest footballer who has ever lived. Diego Maradona is the documentary that tells the story of his incredible triumphs and sad decline. But here's Maradona again. And has Borchaga to his left and Valdana to his left. He does win. He won't need any of them. Welcome to that rarity these days, a blockbuster free week. I don't normally try and propose a theme for one of these shows, shoehorning a grand theory of relativity into a program about three usually very different films is a bit of a mugs game but this week we actually do have some consistency in subject matter if not approach the three films this week are all about getting older and learning to live with the loss of power physical power and prowess corporate power and influence or simply power over our own lives The central characters in the three films this week are all having to deal with the fact that their greatest days are a long way behind them. Diego Armando Maradona won the World Cup as captain of Argentina in 1986 and four years later was banned for 15 months for failing a drugs test. He was never the same player after that. The fictional Aussie rock band The Pacific Sideburns had one big hit in the 80s and then split. In Rachel Ward's Palm Beach, the birthday of their former manager brings them together and it's clear that time hasn't been kind to all of them. Failed jingle writer and an ageing actress. Well, we live in. It's over for us. Why is Billy such an ungrateful bastard? Listen, you little shit. Get stuffed. And in Late Night, Emma Thompson is about to be fired from the late night chat show she created and has hosted for nearly 30 years because the audience has moved on and she hasn't. Will the arrival of a spunky new writer be enough to turn the tide? I need you, Molly. I need your pushiness. 
and lack of boundaries. You love me. No, I didn't say that. I, no. I mean, not in those words, but you... No, I didn't say it in any of those words. And as I watched the movies this week, I couldn't help wondering whether this nostalgia for past glories might not apply to the world of cinema too. Audiences for theatrical entertainment are changing, and the kind of films that are successful at the pictures are different now than they were even a few years ago. I read some sobering statistics the other day that said that movie attendances per head of population in the US, not box office dollars, because they're still generally holding up, but actual attendances are down to an average of about 3.9 per person. That's the lowest ever. What that means is that people are going to the pictures roughly four times a year, and when they go, they'll usually be going to the four biggest films of the year. And those films nowadays are probably being produced by Disney. Audiences are making the decision that only a particular kind of blockbuster absolutely has to be seen in theatres and has to be seen now. So even Disney is making plans for most of its production to go straight to their new streaming service, Disney Plus, which launches in November. The new pseudo-live-action remake of Lady and the Tramp, for example, which Weta Digital are working on, won't make it to theatres in the US. And to make matters worse, Disney now owns Fox, and it has only taken three months of ownership for them to be so disappointed with Fox's box office performance, they've cancelled nearly everything that was planned for production over the next five or so years. Nearly 300 films were wiped from the Fox slate overnight last week. They'll all have to pitch again and will find it harder to get through the much tougher Disney gatekeepers. Meanwhile, Disney has announced plans to reboot well-known Fox properties like Home Alone and Night at the Museum, but not as movies, as series for Disney+. We're protected here from these frankly alarming trends because at the moment we're too small a market for the big streaming giants to fight over. But one day, Disney+, Plus, Hulu, AMC, HBO Max, Sundance Channel, Criterion and the dozens of other specialist services will come here. They'll be playing their content in 4K, which is higher definition than most local cinemas. They'll have state-of-the-art sound and they'll have locked up all the content between them. Don't get me wrong, I think we'll always have the movies, it's just that we'll all go less often and there'll be less choice. But at least it will definitely still be an event. Oh, Dad, you are an obstinate, blinkered, anal, obstreperous, control freak. That's nice, must be my birthday. If you've ever wanted to see an Australian version of The Big Chill, except with everyone about 20 years older, but with the same taste in commercial classic hits music, then you'll love Palm Beach. The premise is basically the same, except it's not a funeral bringing the old friends together. It's a birthday. Brian Brown is Frank, the former manager of the rock band The Pacific Sideburns, who had a massive hit during what would appear to be the 80s. When the band fell apart, he took his talent for merchandising into the apparel business and made a fortune, only selling out when his wife Lottie, played by Greta Scacchi, was fighting breast cancer. They live in a spectacular part of New South Wales in a house with interior and exterior views to die for. It's a landmark birthday. I'm guessing 70 based on Brown's actual age, but the film is very vague about this sort of thing. And he's invited and paid for his friends from the rock and roll days to come out and help him celebrate. 
Sam Neill is Leo, once a vocalist and now a journalist. His wife Bridget is played by Jacqueline McKenzie, and she appears to like a bit of a tipple, but not too much gets made of that. Richard E. Grant is Billy, the only one still in the music business, but he's finding the world of jingle writing tough, and it looks like he's a bit of a kept man due to the success of his actress wife Eva, played by Heather Mitchell. Her career is experiencing some challenges of its own. <laughs> oh, it's not fair, that body at 60. It's not easy. I had to work at it. Well, <laughs> however you did it, you're every bloke's fantasy. Oh, oh maybe once. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, you know, I've been, um, I've been approached to play a grandmother. Oh, no. Oh, what? And I have to fight for it. <sighs> Rubbish. What's wrong with that? I think it's really cool to go from sex kitten to granny. She's too young to play a grandmother. Come on. 60's the new 40, you know. Yeah, sure. From behind and in the dark. Oh. Rounding out the party are some younger people. Frank's kids, Dan, Charlie Vickers, Holly, played by Matilda Brown, the daughter of Brian Brown and the film's writer-director, Rachel Ward. Leo's stepdaughter, Caitlin, Francis Berry. And Holly, Claire Vanderboom, who my notes fail to confirm exactly who she is, but I think she's the daughter of the other band member, whose name I also don't know, but who died some years earlier. I know, I'm not being very professional, but I thought her name was going to be mentioned again, and I was wrong. And we also have Holly's new boyfriend, Doug, played by Aaron Jeffrey. Much Cloudy Bay wine is drunk, much seafood eaten. There's some awkward surfing, not Sam Neill's comfort zone, I imagine. And then we get into some truth-telling. Our agreement, I've rethought, Lottie. Just hear me out. We resolved it 20 years ago. We made a pact, Leo. I'm not who I was. Well, just be who you were. It turns out that even the filthy rich have their problems, although these aren't the kind of problems that wouldn't be solved with the application of some decent communication skills and a big can of get over yourself. Of course, that's a completely unfair characterisation on my part. Depression, anxiety, hopelessness can afflict anyone. But I feel like the shallow treatment in Palm Beach deserves a kind of flippancy from me in return. I hate you all! No, you don't. Yes, I do, and I hate you more than anyone! No, you, you hate me more! No, I hate him more! He hates me more! Why'd you come? Well, it's your bloody birthday, and we're here to celebrate the rational... Mature. Mature, wise old bloke. You've become... Come on! Exactly! Ah! Oh. Oh. Now, you'll have got the message that I didn't respond terribly strongly to Palm Beach. Too often, the characters were symptoms of a malady before they were allowed to be people, and I found it hard to warm to any of them. Having said that, a couple of gentlemen in my audience, I'd venture they were in the boomer age range, could be heard sniffing and seen removing their spectacles in order to dab their eyes with a handkerchief, so you have to give it credit for reaching that hard-to-affect demographic. You're so lucky. Why? Billy still loves you. <laughs> the way he looks at you. Oh, he's just too vain to wear his glasses. All he sees is a blur. <laughs> Palm Beach is rated M for some offensive language and is playing in select cinemas across New Zealand and Australia, for that matter, now. Incidentally, trivia fans, this is the second film called Palm Beach that Brian Brown has been in. The first was a surfing drama from 1980, and it's also the fifth picture that he and best mate Sam Neill have acted in together. Sometimes you make a film because you just want to hang out with your mates in the sunshine, I bet. 
Do none of you understand what is at stake here? I am being replaced. Think about why the show is bad and come up with ways to fix it. I wish I was a woman of color so I could just get me a job I want. We talked about this. You can't say that. I know what everyone thinks of me, but just because I was lucky enough to get this job doesn't mean I'm stupid enough to lose it. What exactly is wrong with my bits? You're a little old and a little white. What can I do about that? The phenomenon of the late-night television chat show is one that has largely passed us by here in New Zealand. Does anybody remember that ventriloquist Strassman insulting B-list celebrities through the medium of a puppet called Chuck Wood? Not a high point in Kiwi TV history, that one. But in America, these things are huge. Each network appears to have at least three of these shows playing progressively later at night, and star hosts like Johnny Carson, David Letterman and Jay Leno ended up becoming some of the most powerful people in show business. Current big-name hosts include Stephen Colbert, James Corden, Seth Meyers and Jimmy Fallon, and I'm sure the astute amongst you have identified the similarities between them. There has never been a female regular late-night host. Stars like Oprah and Ellen dominate the daytime. So we're already in the realm of fantasy when we see the film Late Night is centred on a veteran host who also happens to be a woman. Catherine Newbery, played by Emma Thompson, has been hosting the fictional TV show Late Night for nearly 30 years after being discovered as an edgy English alternative comedian, one of those people that Thompson herself would have hung out with in the days of the comic strip in London. She's successful, brilliant and devastating. But at this point in her career, you wouldn't describe her as beloved. Jen and I just had our second baby, Taylor. Adorable, huh? She takes off to you. Yeah, thanks. So there's just a lot of expenses at home right now, and I think it's time for a raise. I see. This is actually very exciting to me. Really? Great. Because what you're describing is the most clear-cut example of the classic sexist argument for the advancement of men in the workplace. You're asking for a raise not because of any work-related contribution you've made, but simply because you have a family. And that's why in the 1950s, family men were promoted over the women they worked with. I've never encountered it, actually, in such a clean, teachable way. Replacing this hapless writer, her producer, Brad, played by the always reliable Dennis O'Hare, is told to find a woman for the writer's room, and preferably a woman of colour, because the writing staff that Newbery has paid so little attention to is overwhelmingly white and male. There's only one candidate that fits that description, Mindy Kaling as Molly Patel, a quality control officer from a chemical plant in Pennsylvania with dreams of a career in comedy. Despite having no experience in New York, let alone in entertainment TV, she's hired and no one expects her to last beyond the 18-week probation period. But something else is up. A new executive, played by Amy Ryan, wants to shake things up. Maybe Catherine's time in the spotlight is about to come to an end. I came to tell you this year is your last. What? This season is your last. You're cancelling the show? No, I'm cancelling you. The show is irrelevant. The ratings reflect that. Do you want to know who Jimmy Fallon had on last Tuesday when you had Doris Kearns Goodwin? Robert Downey Jr. They washed a sheepdog together. Glorious. Oh, I'm sorry, Caroline. Should I have played Giant Connect 4 with her or perhaps sung a karaoke song on the back of a tandem bicycle? It's Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's a national treasure. Agreed. I only wish she'd been an Avenger instead of writing books about Abraham Lincoln. She could be an Avenger if she tried. 
Now things are getting desperate. Catherine has to turn things around and become loved by America once again. Molly might be the very person who can soften that marble exterior and help her rediscover the talent that won all those Emmys and Golden Globes. But then again, she might not. Everyone knows that Molly is a diversity hire, which means that nobody wants to listen to her ideas. I don't know. Maybe I should move back to Pennsylvania. Can I give you some advice? You need to shut up. Excuse me? If you hear something you don't agree with, you have to resist the urge to give your opinion. I will not be marginalized by the iron fist of white privilege that pervades this work environment. I am not trying to silence your strong female Indian woman of color spirit. Hashtag me too. Trans is beautiful. Blah, blah, blah. You're still a new writer with no experience. You need to stop giving advice and write something. You're a writer, so write. Luckily, Molly has pluck. And as written and performed by Mindy Kaling, who might be best known to Kiwi audiences from her TV show The Mindy Project or the American version of The Office or the blockbuster Oprah Winfrey movie A Wrinkle in Time, which was shot here a couple of years ago. As written and performed by Kaling, she is funny, self-deprecating, honest and ambitious. She's a truth teller and they always get what they want. At least they usually do in the movies. Can I just remind everybody here that the stakes could not be higher so I thought I would take a step back and see what wasn't working. This is what I do at Quality Control at the chemical plant, and I thought I would do that here. The headline of my analysis is complacency. I think people get very excited when you share your beliefs. So what you just said about the Miss America pageant, that was awesome. When you reveal those kind of strong opinions, it's when you really come alive as a performer. That's when I come alive as a performer? Yeah. Could I see that? Absolutely. What's the solution? Oh, I don't have one. Just to be clear, you don't have any new ideas or jokes? OK, I've been doing this job for nearly 30 years and I know what works, and I'll tell you what doesn't work. An absurdly confident newcomer coming in, criticising my show and giving me her assessment of my comic persona. I have not changed. The audience has changed. They don't want smart comedy. They want Kevin Hart on a slip and slide, so let's just give them what they want. Who's the most tacky, famous person out there? As you can probably tell, Emma Thompson was born for this. She's always been brilliantly funny and intelligent, probably too much so to get bogged down in nightly television when she can be winning Oscars for her own screenwriting. And it's a pleasure to see her given a character that she can really get her teeth into, especially when you consider that she is pathologically unable to be untruthful on screen. There's a whole self up there behind the bitchy caricature. And when she's alongside the also-wonderful John Lithgow as her ailing husband, Walter, the film really lights up. For a change, it's the men who are mostly clichés. The writer's room is exactly as grey as everyone describes it. O'Hare, playing Brad the producer, is on a complete hiding to nothing when we all have memories of the late great Rip Torn in a similar role for the classic sitcom The Larry Sanders Show. Late Night is written and directed by young women of colour. This is director Nisha Ganatra's first big screen release in nearly 15 years. It was cheap as chips to make, relatively speaking, and it has plenty of heart. If you liked Kumail Nanjani's comedy The Big Sick from a few years ago, you'll like this one. Amazon did. They bought them both, so that's the streaming service this one will end up on. I need you, Molly. I need your pushiness and lack of boundaries. You love me. No, I didn't say that. I, no. I mean, not in those words, but you... No, I didn't say it in any of those words. 
Late Night is rated M for offensive language and sexual references, and it is playing in wide release across New Zealand now. Fútbol es el juego del engaño. Podía hacer nada contra la camorra. That's the time when everything starts to go wrong. On the evening of 22nd of June 1986, I can remember exactly where I was. I was projecting Wim Wenders' film Paris, Texas to my local film society, and at the same time I was listening to a football match on the radio. England were playing Argentina in the quarter-final of the World Cup in Mexico City. 51 minutes into the game, 25-year-old Argentine captain Diego Maradona used his hand, the infamous hand of God, to propel the ball into England's goal. Four minutes later, he single-handedly set the entire England defence on its backside with a dribbling run of such devastating guile that it still takes the breath away. As Asif Kapadia's superb documentary called Diego Maradona shows, it was the perfect example of a player and a man split into two parts, genius and cheat, angel and devil, Diego and Maradona. In the film, his fitness coach, Fernando Signorini, talks about how he would do anything for Diego, the poor kid from the slums whose only dream was to buy his mother a house, but wouldn't walk through a door for Maradona, the ego fueled superstar who ended up doing so much damage to himself and to others. This is Capadia's third documentary about a tragic public figure after the Brazilian racing driver Senna in 2010, the Oscar-winning Amy about Amy Winehouse in 2015, and now this. In this clip, he talks to an audience at the British Film Institute about the connections between the three films. Um, but the idea of making them kind of visually as cinematic as possible is a kind of theme that I've always been interested in and telling the story with pictures and then the themes, I guess, I guess there's a theme of kind of outsiders against the system. There's kind of a corruption that may be going on that they feel like they're fighting against, a sense of belonging of who you are and where you're from. Um, family seems to run through them. And pop culture, I guess, as well, you know, yeah, when you think about it. Yeah. Now, I know there'll be a lot of football fans who are still too riled up about the whole hand of God business to be seen watching a film about the perpetrator, no matter how fascinating he is, no matter how brilliant on the field he was, no matter how tragic the rest of his life has been. I can understand that, but I will say that if you never watch Capadia's documentary about the man, you can't really call yourself a fan of the beautiful game. He doesn't try and tell the entire life story of the man. He finds the most dramatic arc, the period between 1984 and 1990, when he was at Napoli and everything beautiful turned so sour, and even the Neapolitan fans who he had won their first championship for turned on him. One of Capadia's strengths as a documentary maker is to take footage that we might have seen before in an ancient news clip, for example, and let it play out at length so we get to see it in much greater context and it can illustrate so much more than it was able to do originally. Here, for example, is a bit from the beginning of Maradona's first Napoli press conference and as they try to settle things down, you can hear the fans on the roof chanting the man's name and you get a sense of the kind of pressure that no normal person will ever find themselves under. Later on in that press conference, a journalist asks Maradona what he knows about the Camorra, the Neapolitan Mafia, and things almost kick off right there and then. 
But that moment also sows the seeds for Maradona's later downfall. Like everything in the film, it's expertly chosen and brilliantly placed. Diego Maradona is rated M for subtitled offensive language and apparently some nudity, but not enough for me to remember. And that's our programme for this week. This week we'll close with some music from the film Palm Beach. This is the song that was supposedly the Pacific Sideburns' only hit, Fearless, and it was written especially for the film by a genuine Aussie rock legend of the era, James Rain from Australian Crawl. This is his version from the soundtrack, and if I'm honest, I find it hard to believe that this is actually James Rain because I can understand all of the lyrics. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. Simon is back next time, so please join him for more at the movies at the same time next week. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't, right? Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.